0: So that's where we're headed. In 42 chapters of the book of Job, it's the problem of evil and the power of the gospel. The only way that you can solve the problem of evil is through the power of the gospel. And here's what I do know. I know that our savior entered into our pain in the person of Jesus Christ. And of all the question marks that I have in my heart and soul about this fallen, broken world, People who get prayed for and get healed, and others who get prayed for and do not—all the question marks. Uh, Lee Strobel was on with Greg Laurie, and Lee's written a book called *The Case for Miracles*, and there's some incredible uh, verified cases of miraculous healing in that book. And Lee went out and interviewed a woman who uh, had a terrible disease. She was—it—it had—I'm trying to remember the name of the disease, but it curved her hands in her. Her uh, legs were deteriorated, no more muscle, nothing. She was miraculously healed. And Lee Strobel said, hey, my wife's had fibromyalgia for over 20 years. Why were you healed and not my wife? And the woman said, I don't know. And I think that's a very honest answer. God is sovereign. Why did Job go through what he went through? God had ultimate purposes for us to learn from Job's experience because The one thing that you're not going to get out from or away from in this life is suffering. This life is going to have some measure of suffering for all of us. And the question is going to become for each one of us, what do we do when we face the suffering? Who do we turn to? Will the suffering cause us to turn away from God or turn to God? And so that's what the book of Job's about. It's not just about the problem of evil. And evil is a problem, let's face it. Uh, you you, uh, and, and I look at it in the newspaper, on the news reports every day, and we're faced with it all the time. And, and some of our non-Christian friends are asking these deep questions as well. What do we do with the problem of evil? If God is good, why evil? All these questions. We're going to tackle many of them as we go through this book. We're going to let the book speak and lead us through the questions. So I'm not going to do a lot of introductory stuff tonight, but I'm going to show you just a couple of New Testament passages Before we get into the first chunk of chapter 1, we're going to go up to verse 12 tonight. So not a big chunk, but we're opening with this problem of evil and the power of the gospel. Let's pray before we do anything further. Father, thank you for each precious person that's come out tonight. Uh, Each one of them can relate to Job in some way. All of us can, Lord. But thank you that you came to this world and suffered way beyond what Job suffered really incalculable suffering and you did it because you came to bear our griefs to take our sorrows and one day Lord we know you're coming again and you're going to reverse the curse and death will die in the resurrection and there will be no more mourning no more pain no more disease no more death the former things will have passed away and that's our great hope as believers we're not just living for now we're living for eternity And tonight, Lord, as many of my pastor friends have said over the years, eternity is too long to be wrong about your soul. So I pray that anybody who doesn't know you tonight will find you even in the pages of the book of Job. We lay this entire series at your feet as we go verse by verse through what you breathed out. May we take it in and may it be for our eternal benefit and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said. Amen. I want to take you to a couple of New Testament passages. First, Romans 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. The question, why do we study the book of Job? Uh, I was praying, and you know, as we finish a book and we just finished Esther, Job is the next book. So is that why? Well, I looked at the book and I said, Lord, really? Do you really want me to teach Job? No, that can't be you, Lord. No, it can't be you. Let me pray some more. No, that can't be you. And I keep coming back to Job, Job, Job. So here we are. So why do we study a book like Job? Or for that matter, any Old Testament book, this is Romans 15:4. Romans 15:4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, set so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We studied the Bible. We study what was written in earlier times. We get instructed so that through, the, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You might think this a little bit odd, but you're going to find some encouragement in the book of Job. You're going to find that Job actually will say in the book, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know he's alive. And I know that I'm going to see God. And even after my flesh is destroyed, I'm going to see God. And so Job is going to make some incredible proclamations of faith in the midst of suffering. Wouldn't you agree that probably the most powerful testimonies of faith that we've ever seen in the world have not been given or articulated by people who are on the top of the mountain? Amen? When you can see someone articulate strong faith in the Lord even in their suffering, that's probably the most powerful testimony of all. Now, I'm not saying to you it's easy, and I'm not saying to you that I invited into my life because I, I really don't. We used to be in prayer circles. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians in the next book to your right with a youth pastor's wife, and whenever she was getting too comfortable, we'd be in a circle, and she'd pray, Lord, send me a trial. I'm too comfortable. Lord, send me a trial. I'm too comfortable. And I would release her hand immediately, and I would articulate these words. I will not say the Amen to that prayer that has nothing to do with me lord right i don't i don't want to invite any of that. <laughs> but she had that kind of faith that she felt like when she was getting too comfortable she needed a trial to cause her to lean back into god first corinthians 10:6 speaking of the wilderness wanderings of israel 10:6 now these things happened as examples for us first corinthians 10:6 so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. This is uh, our Sunday morning message actually is uh, in this section. And then 11, same chapter. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written, notice, for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he does not fall. And then all the way to the book of James, a little bit more to your right. James is commenting on Job and he's addressing the wider subject of suffering and unjust suffering. This is James 5, verse 10. And uh, as you turn there, I think you, you can see in our world right now and in the church that we have kind of three gospels being preached in our world. We have a prosperity gospel being preached, largely on television, some on radio that tells you that If you follow the Lord, you're going to be healthy, wealthy. Um, You're never going to get sick. Everything's going to be cool in your life. And that prosperity gospel is simply false. It doesn't hold up to the light of scripture, nor to the light of reality. Now, God does want to bless you, no doubt. But you are not always going to be healthy. You're going to have times in your life when maybe it's tough to even get by. And that will probably, in many cases, have little to do with your spiritual walk with the Lord. Some of that does, and this is where some of the prosperity teachers go wrong. They take principles from the scripture, but then they take them to the nth degree when they just don't fit. So you're going to see that. You're going to see, secondly, in our world dominated in church culture, something called the therapeutic gospel. And this is that every time you walk into church, the pastor's goal is to make you feel better about yourself, your life, and anything that's going on in your life, whether it's good or bad or ugly or indifferent, they want you to feel good. It's the therapeutic gospel. So every time you leave church, you should be feeling like you went through a therapy session is the idea. But that's just not the case if you go through Scripture. You're going to have to carefully pick and choose and probably repeat sermons over and over again because the Bible's filled with a lot of hard reality and a lot of challenging truth. Amen? And then there's something what I would call the third option, which is the true gospel. And the true gospel is going to be filled with joy and blessings beyond what we could even ask or imagine. But it's also going to take us to depths and cause us to look at humanity and even our own hearts with the reality of what the gospel says. We are fallen people in desperate need of a savior. And if we can understand that this is what the Bible teaches, then we will have the correct gospel, which sometimes will include suffering, and in many cases will include joyous um, blessing that it's almost hard to imagine that God has blessed some of us the way he has. This is Ash in his commentary. Every pastor knows that behind most front doors there lies pain, often hidden, sometimes long and drawn out, sometimes very deep. A few years ago, a pastor was discussing how to preach a passage from Job with four fellow ministers. When he looked around at the others, for a moment he lost concentration on the text as he realized that one of them some years ago had lost his wife in a car accident in the first year of their marriage. The second was bringing up a seriously handicapped daughter. The third had broken his neck and had come within two millimeters of total paralysis, or death six years previously. The fourth pastor had undergone repeated radical surgeries that changed his life. As his concentration returned to the text of Job, he thought, this book is not merely academic. It's both about people and for people who know suffering. Robert Gordis writes, The ubiquity of evil and its apparent triumph everywhere gives particular urgency to the most agonizing riddle of human existence, the problem of evil, which is the crucial issue in biblical faith. He calls the book of Job the most profound and, if such an epithet may be allowed, the most beautiful discussion of the theme, more relevant than ever, in this the most brutal of centuries." He closes with these thoughts. Job is a fireball book. It is staggeringly honest. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers, and it knows what we say in our tears. It is not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, it will trouble us, and it will unsettle us at a deep level. Well said. In James, when James is talking about unjust suffering on behalf of the rich against the poor, people who are not even getting their wages when they deserve them, he goes on to this example of Job, and he says, as an example, James 5.10, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets, James 5.10, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is what? He is full of compassion and merciful. Would you note that in light of the book of Job, which we do know as we look at Job, we, you know, I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, I'm wrestling with the book of Job, man. How could God allow this? What's really going on? And I just want you to see as we dig out and wrestle with some of these questions that James says that when you think about Job, you need to see his endurance and then see the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him, that the Lord is full of compassion. The Lord is merciful. Would you all turn to the book of Job? The Lord is full of compassion. The Lord is merciful. Even when he allows you to suffer, it doesn't mean he doesn't care. The suffering that he doesn't lift doesn't mean he doesn't care. Now, I would like, every time I pray about something instantaneously, I would like to be healed. I'd like my situation changed. I would like the Lord to deliver me. But I've learned something from 1 Corinthians 10 and really the rest of the Bible that the Lord doesn't always remove my suffering and pain, but he promises to walk with me through it. Now, there are times when he does graciously touch me. And I I don't know how many times... Um, He has extended his hand of grace and gotten me out of situations and touched my body. You know, medical doctors and scientists say it's a wonder that our bodies work as well as they do, given all the complexity of our bodies and everything that has to work right to make you be able to think and all the complexity of your internal organs and things that you don't even think about every day. So it's a miracle every day we should be waking up just saying, thank you, Lord, that I can see outside these eyes that you gave me and hear and talk and think and eat and participate and reason and see beauty and create and all these things that God gives us every single day. But the book of Job will confront us with the problem of evil. Uh, Sunday afternoon, I was not aware of this story, and I watch a fair amount of the news, and I do, you know, follow a lot of things. I was made aware of an eight-year-old boy in our city who uh, went missing, and I guess this has been going on for a while. I'm not sure why I didn't hear about it, but uh, he, he went missing, and uh, he's, he's eight years old, and now the father is being um, I guess he was, tri- he was in court today accused of um, torture and murder of an eight-year-old boy, and they have delved into the case and found that he went to I think a local Home, home Depot or something had bought acid and other, you know, uh, you can get the heinous details that are coming out. And he's he's said that he's innocent, uh, as I read a news article today. And his wife uh, is being charged for endangering a child because apparently he has an abusive, the father has an abusive past towards this young man. And if indeed this eight-year-old boy is dead in our own city, uh, just, you know, coming out now in the news. Each of us can now, you know, I hear this three days before we begin a series in the book of Job. And we all can say, well, there it is right there. There, There's the why question. An eight-year-old boy, why? And where were you, God? And why do you allow stuff like this? And and, and what's the outcome of, of these types of things? And where do we find answers and hope? We, we certainly, I, I know you're all you're all intelligent people, and, and you don't want pie in the sky answers. You don't want to just say, well, I'm, I'm going to believe the Bible despite the facts, but, but look, the truth of the matter is the Bible doesn't hide the problem of evil. It tells us the source of evil. It tells us why we have the problems we have, and we are in a fallen world, and I could go on and on about, you know, pediatric uh, cancer patients. And I could talk to you about, you know, inexplicable school shootings and little kids that were shot in a kindergarten class around Christmas time just a few years back. And so many stories. You all have your personal stories of family members that even now are going through inexplicable suffering. And the why question does hang over this world and over our lives. And some atheists have just decided that what their answer is going to be is that the universe is just a random, pitiless place, and all that happens is based upon DNA, and whether you got good genes or good luck or whatever they call it. And some people get lucky, and other people get sick and die, and it's just the roll of the dice of a random universe who could care less about whether you're here or not. That's their answer. And if that is the answer... And I'm going to say to you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I don't blame people, and I'm being quite candid with you, who go and try to medicate themselves and escape reality, because if that's reality, if that's all we got, then I would say, maybe that's the best option. But that's not all we got. Because our Savior entered into time and space He entered into our pain. And that's why I want you to see that this series is called The Problem of Evil, The Power of the Gospel. Because so many people who have come to the end of their lives or to losing a loved one or myriads of issues and many stories that you could think of right now have found their hope in Christ and a hope that is beyond just this world, a hope that moves us into eternity. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I would tell you to come with an open heart and mind because you may find that Job is going to ask some questions that you've been asking. And he's going to say some things that you've been saying. And, you know, for for many of us, Job's words have been in our mouth before in one way or the other. And though Job is a righteous and godly man, he's going to say some things that we can all relate to. And so that's what's ahead of us. Uh, a couple of uh, verses that, to give you hope, Job 14, 14, a little bit of introduction here. Pastor Michael is going to try to make it to verse 12. And all God's people said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Here we go. Job 14, 14. Job asked this question, if a man dies, 14, 14, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait, Job says, until my change comes. And then in Job 19, Job 19, 19, just to give you a little bit of hope right out of the gate about the power of the gospel, we've talked about the problem of evil. Here's what Job says in Job 19, 19. He says, all my intimate friends... Those I love have turned against me. Am I in the right place? Okay, good. I am nothing but skin and bones. I'm reading from the NIV. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. My friends have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. And then he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I think that section, if you go to chapter 1, is a good a balance of both. Job's like, why? Why do you guys keep beating me up? Why are you such poor comforters? And then he turns almost like the psalmist does in many of the psalms and says, man, but even though this is my reality right now, I am putting my hope in God. And my prayer for you and for me is that that's where we'll land at the end of each time we close the Bible on a Wednesday night. And I pray that you'll keep coming is that we'll land in, I know that my Redeemer lives, even though I don't understand everything. Now, there was a man, Job 1-1, in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That man, Job 1-1, was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, this story starts like a lot of stories. There was a man. His, His name is Job. He is from the land of Uz, or Uz. I think it's Uz. Most commentators, if you've read anything on the book of Job, believe that this land is around the area of Edom. Edom is to the east of Israel. So Job is not in Israel, or maybe even from Israel. He may not be a Hebrew. He might not come from those roots. He may be of Edomite stock, or from the line of Esau, to the east of the river, and we'll see in a moment that he was the greatest of the men of the east. His name is Job. The date of the book of Job is a question mark as well. Some of you have heard that Job, perhaps, is one of the oldest books of the Bible. The question that people ask is, why would that be? Well, there's a couple of indicators. Number one is that Job is offering sacrifice for his family, doing something that a priest would only do, and if the law had been uh, given, if Sinai had already happened and the uh, deliverance from Egypt for the people of Israel, and Job had the, the law, he wouldn't have been acting in the place of a priest. So they think that's maybe why it's very early. And some believe that Job is maybe a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's conjecture of scholars. Here's another reason. All the way at the end of the book in Job 42, and we'll get there, After Job's been through all of his stuff, he lives another 140 years and sees four generations of children and grandchildren. So scholars say, in light of that, the long lifespan of Job, which seems to be fitting with the first part of the Bible until lifespans begin to shrink lower and lower, since Job lives 140 years after God restores everything back to him and stuff, he's probably... Of that people group that lived very early in creation, and that's a couple of reasons. Plus the style of writing and some of the um, mentions of tools and warfare and and the like. Some say definitely puts this book uh, around the time of Solomon or before, and so you're talking about you know Solomon and David right around what a thousand and a little bit going towards the A.D. mark. And so that, those are some of the reasons why this book is seen as an older book. And so is it one of the oldest books in the Bible? I don't know for sure, but, but I think there's a good case to be made that it's an old book. The book is largely about Job. He is at the center of the book uh, throughout. He is a man named Job. He is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That description is from the author, also of whom we don't know who the author of the book of Job is. All we have is uh, speculation, and uh, I can tell you that the speculation includes people like Moses, uh, Elihu, um, oh, it's not right before we, let's see if I have, oh, Solomon, And some have even argued for Moses being the author of the book of Job. So, again, speculation, we don't know for sure. One thing that we do know is that if you've heard about the book, if you've read any of the book, you know Job is going to go through an awful time of suffering. And the prosperity gospel would say, well, the reason that Job suffers is because what? Well, he's doing stuff wrong or he doesn't have enough faith. And right out of the gate, the writer wants you to know that Job is blameless, upright. He fears God, and the language indicates he's constantly repenting or turning away from evil. In fact, uh, Job 1.1 is the picture, the epitome of a man in Proverbs who's a wise man, a man who the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. A wise man will be blameless and upright. He will fear God and turn away from evil. He will avoid evil. And so Job is a righteous man. He's morally and ethically upright. The righteousness of Job, if you want just a simple way to highlight this, is right out of the gate. And so this should forever debunk the false nation, false notion that Job did something to deserve this. I've actually heard some teachers Not do more than imply that Job must have done something wrong. That's why all this terrible suffering happened to him. Because it does not fit in their theological persuasion that someone could suffer and still be righteous. Now, who is a great example of someone suffering and was righteous? God's son. In fact, he suffered because of righteousness. And please hear what I'm about to say. Some people in the world will suffer simply for doing the right thing. We have Christians all over the world who will not back down from their testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, and they will suffer even to the point of martyrdom for righteousness' sake. So do not be duped by people who try to convince you that Job had to do something wrong. No, the writer wants you to see, man, this guy is an upright guy. In fact, He is compared with two other men in our Bible, and that is Noah and Daniel. Genesis 6, 9 says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. That's Genesis 6, and this is Daniel 6. They couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel, no ground of accusation, no evidence of corruption, inasmuch as Daniel was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Genesis 6-9, Daniel 6-4, laud or applaud Noah and Daniel for their righteousness. Now, I want to show you something that Ezekiel says. Let's turn over to the book of Ezekiel about these three men. So this will, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel 14, just to firm up or buttress the point, that Job was a righteous man. He's compared to these two men in Ezekiel 14. We're going to begin at verse 12. Ezekiel fourteen twelve. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, Ezekiel fourteen thirteen, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts 15 to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, though these three men were in its midst as I live, and that's Noah, Daniel, and Job, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters they alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. 18. Even though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it, to cut off man and beast from it, Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I lived, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Would you mark that? You can see how outstanding the righteousness of Job is compared to Noah and Daniel, both lauded for their blamelessness and righteousness before God, back to the book of Job. So here's what we do know. Job was a righteous man, blameless, uh, upright in his generation. The suffering did not come to him because he was doing something wrong. He was an upright man, fearing God, departing from evil. This is the definition of a righteous man in Job 28.28. A few words to explain. Blameless is the Hebrew word tam. It means to be complete, sound, and Wholesome. It doesn't mean to be sinless, but it speaks of a man who is living a wholesome life, a complete and sound life. Job was a blameless man, and he was a blessed man, as we'll see in verses 2 and 3. He's also described as upright, which is the Hebrew word yashar. It literally means to be straight, level, right, correct. Job was no double-crosser. He dealt straight with everybody that he had interactions with, yashar. He was blameless and he was upright. Job was a blameless man, and he was a blessed man. Verse 2, Job 1. He had seven, the biblical number of completeness, sons, and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were Job's, also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. You ever ridden a camel before? Camels are some ugly beast creatures, man. <laughs> they spit, and they smell, and we we're in Israel, and some of our people got up on the camel, and Some of the people that got up on the camel, I couldn't believe they were on the camel, but they did it. It was awesome. 500 yoke of oxen. He had 500 female donkeys, very many servants, a full staff. And that man, Job, was the greatest of all the men of the east, verse 3. Whenever the Bible's talking about lands, it's going from Israel out So the lands to the east of Israel are going towards Jordan, modern-day Jordan, east of the Jordan River. That's why scholars would say, again, we're talking about um, the area of Edom or ancient Edom or modern-day Jordan. A blessed and successful man, right? He's got many children. He's got his quiver filled with kids in an agrarian pastoral culture. The more sons you had, the more blessed you were thought to be because your sons could work the field. Your sons could do the work. They could labor. They could raise the sheep. They could, uh, you know, uh, pay attention to the crops and bring in the harvest and all of that stuff. So if you had seven sons, someone might say to you, man, you're, it's a full life. The number seven, you have seven boys. Not to leave out the three daughters. Three daughters are awesome blessing too. I have three boys. I I did not have a daughter, so I have I have a daughter in my a daughter in law in my life, and I have a, a girl dog that seems to like me. So I'm hoping when grandchildren come there will be a girl in there. But there's no pressure. All right. Sorry. Sorry I even looked at you. I'm sorry. Anyway. Job had a huge staff. He had a big, great family. He was enterprising, successful, the greatest of the men of the East. Wow, what a description. What a life. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house, verse 4, of each one on his day, maybe on each of their birthdays. And they would send and invite their three sisters, no mention of husbands, so the sisters appear to be younger, to eat and drink with them. Now, when you have seven sons, birthdays come up quite often, so it may be their birthdays or it could have been uh, some sort of celebration with festival or harvest time and each time they had regular celebrations and they would all get together. How many of you come from a big family? Okay, I come from a big Italian uh, family and when I was growing up, we, we would meet at aunt's and uncle's house and we would have this long table and how many of you got stuck sitting at the little kids' table when you were grown up, and you still can't get over it? Some of you are still in counseling over it, and it, it's, I'm at the little little kids' table. Now, how many of you today prefer the little kids' table over the grown-up table? Can I get a witness? The little kids are fun. The grown-up's are like, yeah, this hurts, and this hurts over there. You ever had one of the pains right there on your elbow, and you're like, man, I'm gonna go sit with the kids. <laughs> Do you know I heard a statistic that kids laugh Two hundred to four hundred times a day, and that adults laugh twelve to twenty times a day. (laughs) Oh, I just was doing. I just thought maybe we just try to laugh right there. But okay, it's true that little kids laugh over silly things. And have you ever had one of those moments where you just have a laugh attack? and you don't even know why you're laughing. And then you start to cry because you're laughing so much. And, and I've watched some Christian comedians and I just laughed the whole time and I've laughed to the point of tears. And, and I remember one Christian comedian looking out and he said, some of you, you've laughed so much, you haven't laughed this much in years. And all you can say to yourself is, man, I needed that. It's okay to laugh. Laughter is good medicine. A joyful heart's good medicine. That's why, even in the book of Job, we're gonna to try to laugh a little bit. It's gonna be hard at times, but anyway. This is a celebration family. They would gather, they would send, invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They celebrated life. This is a picture of a happy, joyful family. Prosperous, blessed, upright, good, morally ethical. You could think of maybe a favorite TV show with a good, wholesome family you might have to go back a couple decades to find one of these shows. But anyway, yeah, and, 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 and imagine that family, and imagine they're doing well. They own land. They, ha- they have, you know, people serving, and there's a lot of sheep and cattle, and what, what was the old Western bonanza? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so stuff like that, right? Now, it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, his kids. He would rise up early in the morning, middle of five, and uh, in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So for each child, Job would present a burnt offering. This is why we think the book is pretty old. He's acting as a type of a priest. And Job would say this kind of thing. He'd say, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus, Job didn't just do this once. He did this, What your Bible say? Continually. And it would seem that the language would indicate that maybe after they gathered for these celebrations, maybe Job thought maybe they overdid it or they somehow there was something hidden in their hearts. I think they all love the Lord, but you never know. And so he was interceding for his family through burnt offerings. He's saying, God, if there's something that they've done, if they've cursed you in any way. By the way, Satan is going to say of Job, if you... Take his blessings away. He'll what? Curse you to your face. That's going to be Satan's challenge to God. Well, Job was afraid that his kids might have done something wrong, so he would would do offerings for them. He would intercede for his children. So many of you, you know, you could relate to this. You pray for your kids all the time. You know, you pray for the ones that are wayward, the ones that are walking with the Lord, because you know how tenuous this world can be. And how sin can so easily entangle us. And so you're, you're regularly praying. It's probably at the top of your prayer list for children and grandchildren and those in your immediate sphere. All right, we have something that, you know, is a happy family. It's good. It's blessed. But now we have the word now. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the language is bene ha elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, this is Ha-Satan, the Satan, literally, also came among them. Now, there was a day we moved from earth to heaven. Now we're in God's sphere, God's throne room, if you will. And all of a sudden, we're taken there, and there's a day when the sons of God... Now, some of you have the NIV. The NIV says angels, correct? And the New Living Translation, I think, has something about a council... But the language actually mirrors Genesis 6, 2. And it talks about the sons of God looking upon the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And if you've ever heard that teaching before, you know many good scholars believe that the sons of God there are fallen angels who do some dastardly things with these uh, daughters of men. That same idea is here. These are... Angels that stand before the Lord, the only one that is mentioned or singled out among them is one named Satan. The name Satan, some believe, is a title, not his actual name, and it literally can mean the adversary. So Satan or Satanist could be used in a general sense for one who's an adversary, but here there is a literal Satan, the literal adversary could be his title or what he does, and he's there before the Lord as well. They had come, notice, in some formal way to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan is there as well. Now, do we know that Satan has access to the throne of God even today? The answer is yes. Revelation 12, I think it's verse 10, says that he's the accuser of the brethren, and that he accuses the brethren before God day and night. And so it would appear, this is from my personal study of the end times, that Satan will not lose his access to heaven until the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. So that would tell us that Satan still has some access to heaven, this is my view, and can, that's the only way he can go and accuse brethren before God, right, day and night, as if he's there. And so Job way back in the day if you will gives us an insight into how this works. Job presents himself before the Lord as one who ultimately is inferior. He ultimately is I'm going to put it as Martin Luther put it, he is he is God's Satan. You mean what do you mean Pastor Michael? He is not God's equivalent on the evil side. He's a fallen angel. He must check in with God. He's on a leash. He is God's Satan, as Luther put it. That should give us great hope that Satan can only go so far. Do you remember that when the disciples were at the Last Supper in Luke 22, they're arguing about which one would be the greatest, and it would seem that Satan's getting in there. And Jesus tells Peter, Behold, Satan's been demanding permission to sift you like wheat, Peter. Listen to that. Demanding what? permission but I have prayed for you and when you have turned again, this is Luke 22:31 strengthen your brethren. See Satan has to do things only by permission and you're going to see that here. Why can he get away with the evil he gets away with? I don't understand every angle of it, but I'll tell you this ultimately he's still on a leash and God is, is on the throne. God reigns, God is sovereign. And Satan, in some ways, actually becomes God's tool. And I will tell you that I don't understand all the different angles of that, but that is what's before us. And so these members, including this one, the Satan, come before the Lord to to check in, to almost like a cabinet member would come before the president or a prime minister. One writer says, not everyone on the cabinet is friendly. The expression in British government is her Majesty's Loyal Opposition, or you could just say Donald Trump, right? Because you know that people who are in politics today, if they gather around the President, and if the President were to look at Congress, you know, and, and people are around him, you, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed group, right? Not everybody's behind the decision making of the President, even if they're clapping. And here's the deal. There's something like that that happens in the heavens. God is ultimately on the throne. Satan must check in with God. He's on a leash, but he still is an opposer, an adversary in opposition. And here he is before the throne of God, checking in, presenting himself. And he's with others who do the same. And the Lord, this is Yahweh, said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. You could loosely translate this. God says to Satan, where have you been? Does God not know where Satan's been? No, he knows. This is what scholars call anthropomorphic terminology. How do you like that? I said that at 8.21 p.m., anthropomorphic terminology. That's a 50-cent term, which means the Bible puts things in human terms that we can understand. Is there literally a council in heaven with angels around God? I don't know what that looks like. God is spirit, right? Well, if, if you look at this, it's like when God said to Adam, Adam, where are you? He knew where, where Adam was. What was he doing? He was trying to bring uh, an answer out of Adam so that Adam could confess where he was. This is the same for us. God knows where Satan's been, but it's so that we can understand what Satan's been up to. And he said, I've been roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. Why does Satan roam about on the earth? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If we link the two scriptures, we can see that when Satan says this to God, he's actually on the hunt. And some scholars believe that you could see from the flow of the language that actually Satan's going around the earth seeing if there's any genuinely pious people, any true worshipers of God. And if he finds them, his goal is to devour them. Be of sober spirit, brethren. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. And when he sees someone who's true and trying to live the right life, you can become his target. You say, well, that's good reason to live the wrong kind of life, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because you want to fight the good fight of faith. And greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? I've heard Greg Laurie many times comment on this and say, he pray something like this. Lord, if you ever want to bring up my name, can you make sure that Satan's not around? Have you ever considered my servant? Don't, don't name my name, please, there. Have you considered my servant Job? You've been going around upon the earth, right? There's no one like him on the earth. This mirrors verse 1. He's blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. God begins to brag on Job. Since you've been going to and fro, have you thought about Job? You considered him? Set your heart on him, literally? And Satan answered and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Oh, yes, he fears you, but there's a reason the nothing is emphatic. It's almost like a teenager would say it. Does God fear you, or does Job fear you for nothing? Why does he serve you? Why does he? Why is he upright? Why is he pious? It's because of what he can get out of it. That's why he serves you. Do you see how... Uh, how rude he is, how he's not keeping what we would consider court etiquette. You're addressing the king of the universe. The only reason he serves you is because you've done you. you. You've you put a hedge about him, 10, and his house, all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. You've, made, you've put a hedge about this guy. Just side note, brothers and sisters, I believe that every Christian has a hedge about them. By the Lord. And if anything comes into your life, it will come there first through the filter of God's love. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that if you mess with a door that you shouldn't open, that passing through the filter of God's love, God can even deal with that. But I'm saying this. If something has come into your life recently, and it's an unexpected side swipe, God knows And it's passed through the filter of his love. And he says, But put forth your hand and now touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. In essence, Satan's saying, I guarantee it. If you smite this man, strike this guy, remove the hedge, remove the blessings, he will curse you. This man who's blessed you his whole life, this man who makes sacrifice for his kids, he looks so pious and righteous just smite him just reach out your hand in a negative way take that hedge from around him and he'll curse you to your face wow satan confidently boasts that job will curse god do you know that we're about to hear later in a later study that job's wife will say to him why do you keep your integrity Curse God and die. Do you know that Job's wife became a mouthpiece for Satan? Right there. That's what Satan wanted Job to do. There's, essentially, he's saying there's no true worshipers. This Job guy is a phony. This hit me in my office. I believe that one of the most diabolical works on this earth that Satan does is to plant that same attitude in all our unbelieving friends and family members. Essentially this, they're not genuine. It's all a show for their own personal gain. See, our lives must disprove that notion. And I believe that that notion is satanic. I believe a lot of naysayers against the church who question why you follow Christ question your motives, question everything, I believe that Satan, at least in part, has a role in that, of putting this wet blanket on people, this doubt, these suspicions, and let's face it, the church has given fodder to this. How so, Pastor Michael? By doing it for just those reasons, by being found out to be a fraud, by ripping people off for money, by having exposés by secular television stations prove out what the world thinks is already happening anyway. You see, as Christians, we got to do our best to debunk that lie of the devil. See, that comes from him. Oh, they're not genuine. They just follow because they want blessings from you. And the moment that you take the blessings off the table, they're gone. They're going to curse you to your face. And each one of us are challenged with this as not being our approach to our Christianity that we're only gonna follow God when we think he's blessing us enough. Listen to these words, these are profound. and We're almost done. Now, although the Satan's motives are 100% aggressive and malicious, his argument is correct. There is no other way to publicly establish the nature of Job's piety. David Kleins has pointed out perceptively that the converse would also be true. If a poor man were pious, It might even be necessary to enrich him, to be absolutely sure that his piety was not the result of his poverty. Satan is not bullying God, nor is he offering him a casual wager, as though Job's sufferings were just to see who wins a bet in heaven. No, Satan, for all his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe, that God is worthy of the worship of man, of a man, and that God's worthy worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. And then he goes on to talk about the same logic Peter talks about. He says, the glory of God is more important than you, your or my or Job's comfort. In some deep way, the sufferings of Job are necessary to redound to the glory of God. Paradoxically, the Satan, for all his evil motivation, has a necessary ministry in God's government of the world for his glory. If Satan did not issue this challenge, it would be necessary for God to delegate this terrible task to another supernatural creature. Satan has a ministry. It is the ministry of opposition, the ministry of insisting that the genuineness of the believer be tested and proved genuine. It is a hostile, malicious ministry, no doubt, but it is a necessary ministry for the glory of God. Now, I will tell you that these are not thoughts that come to us in our average Bible study. But there it is. God is going to use this story to grow us all and even to get us to look deep at our motives. And then the Lord said to Satan, final verse, Behold, All that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. You can't touch him, but everything else is in your power. And so these frightful words, so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord, and we all buckle our seatbelts because we know what is next. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we need to widen our idea of well done, good and faithful servant to include well done in the trials, well done in the tough times, Well done when your body didn't feel good. Well done when a curveball came your way and it didn't make sense. Well done when it was hard to deal with that family member and you kept going. Well done when you didn't want to get up for work any day of the week and you got up for the sake of your witness and your family. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, a good and faithful servant is not going to always have easy working conditions but we have a God who will see us through to the end. Well, Father, we thank you that we can circle back to the gospel at this moment as we close this time together in the book of Job and remember that you entered our pain. You carried our sorrows. You were born in Bethlehem in a cave with animals. You grew up in a place that was despised called Nazareth. You came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Your ministry touched so many. Opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. You touched lepers. You raised the dead. You calmed the sea. You delivered people from demonic possession. And yet they hated you without a cause. And to the cross you went the most innocent man that ever lived, blameless and upright, could not be said of really anybody in the purest sense except you. And yet you suffered for me, for Job, for David, for Samson, for Noah, for Matthew, for every single person that's in this room or hears my voice tonight. You are a God that is good full of compassion and love. And though we don't understand everything that you do, Lord, what we do know is how the story ends. And we're going to watch Job not understand. He's going to speak a lot of hard things. He's going to have a lot of questions, and we're going to relate to them. But in the end, we're going to find our answers in our Redeemer who lives keep your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus, maybe you've been far away from him. Maybe something you've been going through has pushed you away. Maybe you've felt like Satan's gotten the best of you. It's time to come home to your God. You can ask hard questions. You can pray difficult prayers. God allows that. He cares. Our high priest understands what we go through.n't you cry out to him, won't you just say, Lord, I want to know you, I want to follow you, I want to be close to you. I want to do it for the right reasons, for the sake of your glory, not just because you've blessed me, but because you made me and saved me. If you've not met Jesus, just cry out to him, If you need to rededicate your life, just say, Lord Jesus, I'm coming home. And for those of you who have not met Christ, you've got to say, I believe in his crucifixion. I believe in your resurrection. I repent, and I put my faith and trust in you. Save me, Lord. Be gracious to me. Lord, for this precious congregation, thank you that through the good times and the bad times, through the ups and downs, They have decided to follow, no turning back. Thank you that you will see us all the way to the finish line. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.